It lies somewhere between the pit of your stomach, your racing heart, and your brain, somehow trying to keep it all together. It's an area we call the adrenaline zone. I'm retired astronaut Dr. Sandra Magnus. And I'm retired Navy fighter pilot Admiral Sandy Winnefeld. We're two adrenaline junkies who love spending time with people who are really passionate about pushing their boundaries as far as possible. During the Cold War, the United States worked hard to try to understand what was going on inside the Soviet Union and other communist countries. Part of getting that done involved photographic reconnaissance. The U-2 was developed to overfly those countries, but when Francis Gary Powers was shot down in 1960, high, slow flyers became much more restricted. Satellites capable of taking photos were relatively new and fairly basic. They had low resolution, and recovering the photos by parachute took time. In response to this, Lockheed was selected to build a survivable spy plane. The eventual outcome of that effort, the SR-71, first flew in December of 1964. Our guest today is Ed Yielding, who flew the faster-than-a-bullet SR-71 on more than 90 worldwide reconnaissance missions. He also set a speed record on the SR-71's final flight in military service, flying from Los Angeles to Washington, D.C. in under 65 minutes. We caught up with Lieutenant Colonel Yielding at his home in Florence, Alabama. Ed Yielding, welcome to the Adrenaline Zone, and thanks for being with us today. Well, thanks for having me. I really appreciate your interest. Well, you know, I'm delighted that our mutual friend, Kevin Chilton, uh, introduced us and really appreciate you joining us today. And, you know, we like to start off with our guests, like, you know, where are you from and how did you get into what you're doing? How did you get into the Air Force? Uh, how did it all start? Well, I was raised in Florence, Alabama, up in the northwest corner of Alabama oh. on the Tennessee River. Had nearly a, an ideal childhood, I would say. Uh, went to Auburn University and I really I wanted to fly the Blackbird. I had my eyes on it since I was 15 years old when it was announced by President Johnson in 1964. And uh, so ROTC at Auburn and ROTC was good to pay my books and tuition and promised to send me to pilot training afterwards. And so uh, that's how I entered the Air Force through ROTC at Auburn University. You know, that's three of us have, have something in common then, because Sandra wanted to be an astronaut from the time she was a little girl. Yeah. I wanted to fly the F-14 from the when I was in high school on. And I can't believe you wanted to fly the SR-71 from the time you were from a young the teenager. Go, that's yeah. cool. <laughs> but, you know, you didn't start that way. You started off as an RF-4 pilot. And so what was that mission like? And then how did you transition from that to the SR-71? To be a selected for the SR-71, you have to have had about 10 years of high-performance jet experience. And so out of pilot training, I was able, I graduated near the top of my class, and I was able to choose uh, an RF-4. I was interested in photography and, and also the, the jet. So our mission in the RF-4 was uh, high-speed, low-altitude photography. So our mission was in combat to fly below enemy radar and of course, that was before GPS, and we did have an INS, but we had to map read our way around the the low level course, uh, 480 knots and 500 feet altitude, and in places we were allowed to go down much lower than that. So it was exciting. I really enjoyed flying that RF4, and we 
participated in red flag uh, war game exercises out in Nevada and uh, uh, and and I did after the RF four did fly the F four fighter for three years and so I had a total of nine years of uh, Phantom experience before I was selected for the SR seventy one and uh, really love flying the Phantom it was uh, dangerous though you had to be really careful uh, especially all that low altitude work and uh, in those uh, red flag war game exercises over that nine years I lost uh, six friends and accidents practicing for the defense of our freedom. So um, the SR-71 is a very special airplane, right? It was way ahead of its time and its design and, you know, the whole thing. So what can you tell us about, first of all, its principal designer, Kelly Johnson, and sort of the unclassified cool aspects of, of its unique construction and airframe? Well, the airplane itself has been all declassified now, so nothing about it is classified now. Some of these sensor capabilities are still classified, but otherwise, the airplane is a fascinating machine. Really love flying it. Just an amazing machine. Kelly Johnson was the principal designer with Lockheed Skunk Works. He was born in 1910. I read his biography. He's one of my heroes. So I know a lot about him. As a child, he wanted he wanted to design airplanes. He did not want to fly them particularly, but he wanted to design them and became one of America's premier airplane designers. And his uh, stepson showed me a scrapbook that young Kelly had made when he was 12 years old. And I enjoyed flipping through that scrapbook on airplanes. And one article that really caught my attention was a, an article about how, you see, that would have been in 1923, how, how that French had just taken the world speed record from the United States. So he had that article cut out, and at the top of the page, he had four exclamation points and said, notice, and you can practically <laughs> hear young Kelly saying, that is unacceptable, and I'm going to design an airplane that'll take the speed record, and he sure did. <laughs> uh, but what made Kelly uh, so successful was not only was he a brilliant engineer, but he's also a brilliant manager. He didn't build the airplane by himself. And, and so engineering and management made him highly successful. He designed the P-38 World War II, America's first uh, operational jet fighter, the F-80 Shooting Star, the F-104, the U-2 spy plane, which was shot down over Russia in 1960. Mm -hmm. Francisco Air Powers. And so he decided, well, I'll build an airplane that's too high and too fast to be shot down. And so it was a crowning achievement, the beautiful and at the, at the time mysterious SR-71 Blackbird. Well, it's still, I think, one of the more beautiful planes ever, quite frankly. Oh, it really is. It, it still looks futuristic, even though it was built in the early 1960s. These engineers were using slide rules still to design the airplane. Well, I, I could talk... It's I, I, could, I can talk a long time just about the construction of the airplane and some of the features about it. So, Well, for one thing, it was a very high temperature, right? That's right. So friction with the air cruising in air that was minus 70 degrees Fahrenheit, near 80,000 feet, friction with the air caused the skin temperature to average 550 degrees Fahrenheit. And so there were parts of the airplane that were much hotter than that due to the friction. So... Uh, aluminum alloys, which most airplanes are built of, uh, would be too soft at that high temperature. So he made it out of uh, titanium. So they pioneered the use of titanium in construction of the airplane. Expensive and difficult. 
Right, it was. It really was. And so with the temperature, uh, the, the airplane grew about uh, four inches due to the high temperature. So it had to have these expansion joints and had to be able to expand. And I, I pulled out the coefficient of expansion for titanium to make sure that was correct. And it, it, it four inches sounds pretty reasonable. And they had to anticipate that. It wasn't something they discovered. They had to plan for that, which was a exceptionally good engineering. That's right. Uh-huh. That's an amazing airplane. So Ed, I, I've seen uh, photographs of the cockpit. You know, every pilot wants to see what the cockpit looks like in an airplane, right? And I was I was shocked at how complicated that cockpit looked. More steam gauges than I think I've ever seen. Uh, certainly, I would think more than than the Phantom, the F4 Phantom had. What, what was it like to sit in that cockpit in your pressure suit with all that complexity? Because it was quite a complex airplane to, to fly, right? Before we ever had our first flight in the airplane, we had almost, I'd say, 100 hours of academics and simulator time. It was highly stressed to keep a constant cross-scan across all of those instruments because at that speed, you could get in trouble in a hurry if you didn't catch certain malfunctions in a timely way. So our mission were constantly scanning those those uh, gauges. Now, the airplane was updated through the years with uh, digital computers. When I first got in the airplane in 1983, they were just transitioning from analog computers to digital computers. They updated the computers and the uh, software the uh, sensors, quite a few things about the airplane were updated through the years, but there was never really a need to update the pilot displays. And that was just, just fine with me. Those, those uh, 60s gauges worked just fine. It's interesting because, you know, we train and fly in the shuttle. We wear pressure suits as well, right? And we're going really fast as well. But we had a crew of four. And first, I have to tell you that pilot and the commander hated wearing the gloves, even though there's not as many gauges and stuff in the in the shuttle. But, you know, it took us four brains to kind of keep up with the vehicle in order to be able to take over if we had to fly manually, which, of course, is what you were doing. So did you start with a two seater to do this or did you have to do all that with one single brain right from the get go? Because that's that's a lot of workload to your point you just made. By the time we had our first flight, we're nearly an expert in the airplane just due to all that simulator training. But we did have a trainer. They, they built two trainers, and one of the trainers was crashed in the 70s. So we had one trainer, and the back cockpit was built wow. up a little higher so the instructor at the back could see forward. So our first five flights in the trainer were with an instructor. They had excellent instructors. B.C. Uh, Thomas was, was one of my main instructors, and he wound up with more flying time in the Blackbird than any other pilot in history at 1,217.3 hours. Wow. And uh, he re- really worked us over in, in the simulator, and it never occurred to me during those difficult simulator missions that that he would someday be one of my best friends. <laughs> and uh, Bernie Smith also was, was one of my lead in, in, instructors. So they'd throw the kitchen sink at you in the simulator? <laughs> oh, they did, yeah. And it really paid off uh, later on because malfunctions yeah. were pretty common in the airplane. Although we had a really good record for being able to uh, accomplish our mission, but it wasn't unusual for something serious enough to happen that we would have to land away at a friendly base. I mean, what was the most common set of malfunctions or was it just kind of all over the place? Because, I mean, having to land from a malfunction is sort of a critical thing. Yeah, uh, quite a number of malfunctions could happen. I suppose engine-related 
malfunctions would be what would most of the time cause land away missions, land away at a friendly friendly base. So you had uh, five flights in the trainer, Ed, before you could fly in the airplane that, that had a mission specialist in the backseat. How many flights did you have to have total before you could actually do an operational flight, uh, an operational reconnaissance flight? We had to have a, a hundred hours of flying in the airplane. And those training missions were around the Western United States. And so at probably average, average, uh, probably four hours flights. So four under a hundred hours, I guess we had about 25, probably about 25, 25 missions. Yeah. Mm-hmm. The, the pressure suit was really pretty comfortable to fly in. I guess it was very similar. Matter of fact, the first shuttle missions borrowed our pressure suit. So mm-hmm. you, you know how it felt. But we had uh, air conditioning tubes through the through the pressure suit and it was pretty comfortable. And uh, the switches in the airplane were made large enough that we could operate the switches with our pressure, ah, yeah. pressure suit gloves. And re- really, that really wasn't a, a problem. And our missions were short enough, short enough that, you know, we weren't in that suit all of that long. Our longest routine missions were five and a half hours. We had some missions as, as short as two hours over in Okinawa up to uh, the boundaries of North Korea. A lot of those were only two hours. We were we were in those suits for seven, eight, nine could be yeah yeah <laughs> it's fun yeah we had a few missions that were 11 hours and the longest one i had i had a couple that were eight hours wow amazing so i mean this plane is amazing but it was and still is quite frankly at the forefront of technology so there's all kind of risks with flying a plane like that you know you're going really fast the engines are offset you've got low pressure at high altitude you've got temperature issues you're in a pressure suit. I'm assuming you had a harness and a parachute and some kind of ejection system. Could you get out of the plane if you had a problem way up there? What what does your what does that kind of a scenario look like? We did have an ejection seat uh, similar to most any fighter, and we had had a parachute. So if you ejected at eighty thousand feet, you would fall with the seat till you got to fifteen thousand feet, and then the big parachute would 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 automatically open. And you had oxygen. Clearly. Had oxygen in the in the uh, survival kit, and it had a small drug chute so you could sit, sit upright and enjoy the view on the way down. <laughs> I can't imagine though ejecting at Mach three, uh, even though the I don't know what the indicated airspeed is at eighty thousand feet in Mach three. It's probably not that high, but still, you're going. Your body's not going to survive a supersonic ejection up there, is it? Yeah, you could. Yeah, the air, air was thin enough. Yeah, there's enough. no air. Yeah. So we were cruising at near 80,000 feet. 85,000 feet was our max altitude. And we always try to operate with the best altitude for the weight of the airplane for fuel economy. So normally we didn't get all the way to 85,000 feet, but somewhere in the 80,000 range. And so at that altitude, we're above 97% of the air molecules. And so you had a really nice view of the earth. Uh, You can see the curvature of the earth and more noticeable than the curvature was how dark it was overhead. It wasn't as black as what uh, Sandra saw, but uh, it was very, very dark, uh, very, very dark blue, almost black. So that was even more noticeable than the curvature of, of the earth. I think it's really cool that you can say the sentence, yeah, we were cruising at 85,000 feet. 
<laughs> yeah. awesome. Yeah. <laughs> just a matter of routine. Yeah. So Ed, you flew a lot of operational missions during your career as a Blackbird pilot. You know, how we already talked about how long they were, but you know, how often did you have to refuel? You know, you didn't stay at high altitude, high speed the whole time. But what what kinds of missions were you were you out there flying operationally? We were flying um primarily border reconnaissance around uh, North Korea, uh, around the Soviet Union, along the northern borders of the Soviet Union, around the Arctic Circle area, the Eastern Bloc countries of the Europe. We had some missions uh, in the Middle East and a few down in uh, Central America, uh, Nicaragua, when Ortega was causing problems back in 1984. So those were uh, our... uh, primary missions. And uh, just sort of as a follow on it, you know, you hear or read stories about, you know, the SR-71 got shot at a lot, but never hit. Do you have any reflections on that? Is that all, um, you know, folklore or were you ever really engaged by threat missile systems or fighters? Yeah. As far as I know, I was never, never fired at. Sometimes we did see Soviet fighters try to intercept us, but we were very difficult to intercept because of our speed and altitude. Only once you could see the you could see the fighter contrails way down below, and only once did one get close enough that I could actually see metal. And I'm guessing it was probably seven miles away. I was told later it was a MiG thirty one. Yeah, I was going to say it must have been a Fox batter or something like that. Yeah. yeah. Now I've heard stories of they were fired at some during during Vietnam. You know, the airplane was used during Vietnam. I'm skeptical about thousands of missiles that are being fired, at, which which is a number I've heard sometimes. But I I don't know that I don't know that for for sure. None none of our airplanes were fired upon with a missile that we know of during my era, which was 1983 to 1990. Shortly before I started in 1983, there was one missile fired at an SR-71 near uh, North Korea. I think that was in 1982. It'd have to be a pretty lucky shot to hit it. Right. That's right. Uh-huh. So when you start, started flying this airplane in 1983, I don't think GPS existed then. If if it did, it was rudimentary. And, you know, you're going at Mach 3, you're going really fast over the ground. Uh, how did you navigate? You know, countryside's going by pretty fast. Um, what kind of systems did you use to to know where you were? Yeah, we did not, of course, did not have GPS. And, and, and we started when the airplane was uh, retired in 1990. There were plans to get GPS capability for the airplane, but it was canceled before uh, before we got that. But the airplane used inertia navigation system. It was called a ANS, Astro Navigation System. So for navigation, the planners planned the exact route of the flight, and it was the route of the flight was put on the magnetic tape, and that magnetic tape was loaded into the airplane. So the airplane knew what the route was, and with our INS system, inertia navigation system, the INS system will drift with time. So the INS systems have to be updated by radio signals from the ground. We couldn't depend on the Russians to give us good radio signals for our <laughs> navigation. So don't just dial up their TACAN station. Okay. <laughs> yeah. So so uh we had a a star tracker, there was a little telescope mounted behind the navigator, and that a little telescope would slew around and find find stars. And so for that to work, the backseater had to dial in what day of the year you're flying, and they would plug in a very accurate clock into the 
airplane, so it knew the airplane knew exactly where the Earth was in its rotation as well as its revolution. So it knew where to look for the stars, and it would look in the direction of a star and then do a search until it found the star, measure that angle, and keep our position updated. I always thought that was really cool from early 1960s navigation. That's amazing. It really resonates with me because, what you know, in, in the early days, me flying the F-14, we didn't have GPS either. And we would maintain our combat air patrol station off of Iran using an Iranian navigation aid. They conveniently kept their tack in on for us so that we could, uh, <laughs> we could you know, keep stationed there. And the other mm-hmm. thing, though, celestially, I would, you know, I would always turn my cockpit lights way, way down at night and I would construct my turns based on looking at the stars. Not quite as accurate as your system, but it was pretty cool to be able to to do that. So, you know, back in the day, right? That's right. Pretty cool. Wow. So you were the last person ever to fly this magical aircraft called the SR-71. Can you tell our listeners about that final flight? Okay. But let me, let me preface that with, uh, it turned out that I was not the last. At the time, they thought that I was going to be the last supersonic my flight would be the last supersonic flight, and then there were going to be subsonic flights to museums after that. And then in 1995-96, Senator Byrd thought we, we might be having a war with uh, North Korea, so they reactivated three Blackbirds, and there was there were crews that were selected to fly those three airplanes training missions around 1996-97. And then after uh, the Air Force canceled it again, NASA was given permission to fly uh, training flights, research flights in the Blackbird. And I believe that the last uh, NASA mission in the Blackbird was uh, in 1999. So were you sitting by the phone, Ed, waiting for somebody to call you and and, uh, (laughs) say, hey, we need you back? Well, I'm, I'm still waiting for that. I keep thinking somebody's really... You can probably still fly it, right? Some of these really modern airplanes, I would I would love to fly them. <laughs> so I was uh, very fortunate to be chosen to fly an airplane to the Smithsonian Museum. Since the airplane was being retired in 1990, museums all over the country wanted one, including the Smithsonian. So the decision was made to send uh, Blackbird tail number 972, which was our test airplane at, at Palmdale. I had been in the airplane by about six years by this time. And the last two years, I was as a test pilot down at, at Palmdale flying the, the uh, Blackbird. So JT Vita was the test RSO that was assigned to fly that with me. And I, I had flown a, a lot of test missions with JT. And I was, anyway, we, we felt it both extremely fortunate to, to fly that flight to the Smithsonian. And JT, by the way, he had, more time in the Blackbird than any other crew member in history, pilot or navigator. He, he wound up with 1,392 uh, hours in the airplane. And I'll just mention after our speed record flight, he got cancer and passed away two, two years after our flight. And I just want to say what a pleasure it was to fly with JT, just a wonderful friend and outstanding RSO, Reconstant Systems Officer. No, that's unfortunate. So... The two of us uh, felt so fortunate to be selected because we knew that any of the crews had the skill to fly that flight. And so we wanted to uh, do our very best to to represent all the Blackbird community in that speed record flight across 
the country to the Smithsonian. And the reason it was a speed record flight is the Smithsonian wrote a letter to the Secretary of the Air Force, Donald Rice, and said, when your pilot brings the airplane to the Smithsonian, please have them set an official coast-to-coast airplane speed record, and that would call the public's attention to what a great airplane it has been for our country for 25 years. So that was the purpose of the speed record, call the public's attention to it. So our plan was to take off from Palmdale. We would fly 200 miles out over the Pacific and air refuel, get a full load of fuel, light the afterburners and get a 200-mile running start. The NAA, the National Aeronautic Association, is the, the agency that monitors and verifies official speed records. So they had representatives on each coast, and they also wanted three city-to-city records along the way. And you would think a city-to-city record would be from takeoff to landing, but that's not how they do the city-to-city records. You pass by a city at speed, get the time, and then as you pass the destination at speed, they get the time. So that's how we were able to do three city-to-city records as we did the coast-to-coast record. So fuel was going to be really tight to fly all the way across the country at top speed. Ordinarily, we weren't allowed to fly faster than 3.2, but my commander gave us permission to fly Mach 3.3 for our crews. We didn't have the fuel across West Coast at Mach 3.3 and the East Coast at 3.3, turn around and land at Dulles. So we had to plan it so that we were accelerating past the West Coast through Mach 2.5, and then a few minutes later, we would be at our top speed, Mach 3.3. So we took off for Palmdale at 4.30 in the morning Pacific time, which is 4.30 in the morning Washington time. We joined with those tankers out over the Pacific. It was pitch dark, no no moon, no horizon, but we had refueled at night many times. We uh, got our fuel and lit the burners, accelerated toward the West Coast, crossed it, Mach 2.5 is planned, climbing and accelerating. But we're flying toward the sun, so the sun's coming up really rapidly. So we could see the sunrise as we're crossing the west coast. Then a few minutes later, uh, we could see uh, the sun is up, and we could see the the entire city of Las Vegas down there and uh, Lake Mead. A few minutes later, see the Grand Canyon. And uh, it was a special flight, so I was having some special thoughts and remembering uh, one of my favorite hymns, America the Beautiful, where cruising right over the uh, heart of America at Mach 3.3. Uh, we passed by those uh, majestic mountains of southwest uh, Colorado, as is sung about in that song, America the Beautiful. We passed about 60 miles south of Pikes Peak. For the top of Pikes Peak is where Catherine Bates was inspired to write that wonderful song, America the Beautiful. A few minutes later, we're right over that fruited plain that she sang about in her song, Hundreds of miles of prime American farmland. I thought about all those thousands of uh, farmers down there starting their day, getting ready to raise food that feeds most of our country and even enough to export overseas. I thought about our brave pioneers that I read about as a boy and explorers taking months to cross country that JT and I were covering in just a matter of minutes. Thought about what a great, great country we have made great by the hard work and sacrifices and courage and prayers of our forefathers. The eastern part of the country was uh, undercast, so we didn't see many features in the eastern part of the country. But JT and I just made sure we enjoyed those last few minutes 
a view of God's earth from 80,000 feet. We wound up at 83,000 feet on that flight. And uh, just thinking how very, very fortunate we were to serve alongside hundreds of other highly dedicated men and women who designed and maintained, supported, and flew the Blackbird through 25 years of service and just made sure we enjoyed our last few minutes of flying that marvelous, marvelous airplane. What a great story. That's a lovely story. I do have a practical question I've I've been wanting to yes. ask though, because you're we're not we're not supposed to have sonic booms over land, but yet you were flying supersonic over land. So did you get special dispensation or what happened with the sonic boom you were creating the whole way across the country as you were flying so fast? All those farmers yeah. you were talking about. <laughs> not like, happy. What was that? What was that? <laughs> what happened with that? Did you get stories from people, surprise people? Yeah, I was I was uh I was worried about adverse publicity. I was afraid that there would be people uh making false claims against the government as a chance to get cracked windows and cracked walls repaired. Yeah. But uh public affairs at, at the Pentagon told me uh, later that there were were no claims and, and as soon as people found out that it was the the Blackbird on this historic mission that they heard they were just uh, happy to have heard something historic. But, you know, the Blackbird flew regularly during our training missions, supersonic over the western United States. And so we were allowed to be supersonic as long as we were above 30,000 feet. So when we were transitioning from subsonic to supersonic, we would have to be above 30,000 feet as we went supersonic. We did try to, on those training missions, we would avoid major cities. Yeah. Once we got to altitude, though, the the, uh, the sonic booms were noticeable, but, you know, not not dramatic, not not nearly enough to break anything. I guess when you're that high, uh, it doesn't matter as much as if you're down low doing it. So, Ed, I see that beautiful model over your shoulder on your mantelpiece of the SR. I know you must miss the flying, you must miss the airplane, but... You're doing something else right now, doing some pretty cool volunteer work. Uh, tell us about that. I always liked math a lot. And during COVID, you know, when we're all locked in, I thought, well, for entertainment, I decided to do a really good review of my calculus through primarily through those great courses, videos. And Dr. Bruce Edwards just has a marvelous series on calculus and pre-calculus. And I, so I watched carefully those and I had I bought me a an updated uh, handheld computer, a graphing computer. So just for fun, I watched all of those and worked out some of the problems with my calculator. And I thought, after all of that study, uh, just for entertainment, I thought, well, I'll try to put it to use. Uh, ask our local community college if, if they had any need for somebody like me. And so they they invited me to tutor. I told them I would, and I told them I'd do it for free, a tutor for free. And so they let me tutor for free for a couple of weeks. And then they said, well, we're paying our other tutors and we insist on paying you too. So I said, well, okay. But uh, so that was really nice. And I'm really in, been enjoying uh, tutoring calculus at the community college. So I just wanted Sandra to hear that because now she knows that not all fighter pilots are dumb. I uh, never said it, that. <laughs> Don't put words in my yeah. mouth. Okay. Uh, Dude. Well, well, I'll tell you what, you know, we're, we're uh, pretty much out of time, but I just wanted to say, I know you probably don't like 
being described as as a hero uh, because you to you I'm sure you were just doing your job right but there's something to me heroic about flying that magnificent airplane for so many years doing it in hazardous conditions doing it flawlessly and then being you know uh, being able to set those records uh, on your last flight so uh, you know hats off to you Ed really proud to know you and to have the opportunity to talk to you about this magnificent airplane thanks for sharing your time with us amazing stories thank you well thanks so much and i just want to say i i've read your both of your biographies and i just truly admire both of you so much and i appreciate your service for our country both of you thank you well thank you very much that was former sr-71 blackbird pilot ed yielding i'm sandra magnus and i'm sandy winnefeld Check us out on social media, including a short video of our interview with Ed on TikTok. Our handle is very simple, at The Adrenaline Zone.